CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400, 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my usual co-host, Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. We're going to be joined a little later in this podcast by Tyler Dunn, who has written a book. Everybody here in Western New York or wherever you're listening from, if you're a Bills fan, you know Tyler Dunn's work because he used to cover the Bills for the Buffalo News. Uh, he's written a book called The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football, and it is uh, on sale next week. We're going to talk to Tyler not only about uh, writing the book, uh, who made the cut, who didn't make the cut in his 15 chapters. Um, we're going to talk about how the Bills uh, are going to have a problem on Sunday with one of the great tight ends in NFL history, Travis Kelsey. Uh, Jonah, let's start there. Uh, let's just have a little chat about uh, this game on Sunday. Obviously, a big matchup. People are re, uh, uh, revisiting 13 seconds. Uh, both games last year in which uh, the Bills really handled the Chiefs at Arrowhead Stadium in the regular season and then should have won in the playoffs to advance to the AFC Championship game, uh, had two leads within the final two minutes of regulation before uh, succumbing finally to uh, – uh, a sudden death uh, field goal, um, or excuse me, a, uh, a touchdown. I'm sorry, the field goal was kicked uh, with uh, no time left on the clock in regulation. Sorry, that was Travis Kelsey again. Um, I don't know, just your thoughts on this, uh, on this rematch. And I guess with the regular season, it seems like it's kind of flying right up against us here, Jonah, right? I mean, this game's only a couple of days away, and uh, it seems like we haven't been caught up in the hype of it yet. Is that accurate, or am I misreading um, it? I, I mean, I think a little bit is because the Chiefs played on Monday night, so some of that Monday hype was delayed, and there's been a lot of attention on Devontae Adams and some of the things that happened in that Chiefs-Raiders game that maybe have, from a national perspective, distracted from the Allens versus Mahomes rematch. But I think by the time 4 p.m., 425 Sunday rolls around, I think a lot of people, especially CBS and Tony Romo and Jim Nance and that crew are going to get us all hyped for this big game and that that playoff game, regardless of how it, the end result, was one of the greatest games of all time. It gets shown on NFL Network as branded as, you know, one of the all-time great games. And this is, it's not part two because they played four years in a row now in two playoff games, but it's another continuation of this great rivalry series. And if you recall, before they played in the playoffs, the games weren't always close. One team, the Bills last year in the regular season, or the Chiefs in the previous meetings, kind of one going away. And then they had this great playoff game, and here they are, probably the two best teams in the AFC at this point, playing again. 
a 425 p.m. kickoff. And while it's not a primetime game, it is considered a national game because the NFL is kind of setting it apart uh, from those one o'clock kicks. Uh, it is going to be shown to uh, most of the country uh, because, as you mentioned, uh, Tony Romo and Jim Nance are going to have the call. Um, so, in fact, it's going to be shown to the entire country, right? Because the other two games are NFC games. So that's, uh, the, you know, that's going to be in their local markets. Uh, so pretty much the entire country is going to get um, bills at Chiefs at 425. Um, that feels to me like a bigger TV window than the Sunday night primetime game. I don't know if it gets stronger ratings, but it's closer aligned to what an AFC championship game or a Super Bowl would start at that late afternoon, early evening, and beyond the late Sunday game seems like the big, the biggest television audience when you factor in the East and the West Coast and what time it is and all over the country. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, it, it has a big feel to it. You're going to have to pace yourself differently uh, if you are one who likes to uh, get after it at the tailgate or have your uh, party at, at the house or go to the bar. Uh, don't, uh, don't take those, uh, one o'clock routines, uh, out the door with you, uh, when you uh, get started on Sunday, uh, slow it down a little bit. So that way you can, uh, uh be in, uh, have 425 in your, in your festive uh, wheelhouse. Um, I and think you're, you're making right. the trip. You're making the trip for this game. Doesn't that underscore how big of a, how much <laughs> of a BFD this game is? Oh, I, I, yeah, it's, it is a big deal. And, um, yeah, but I don't think just because I'm making the trip, I've I've made the trip for some donkey games too. Um, you know, I'm going to Detroit for Thanksgiving. I wouldn't consider that necessarily a marquee matchup, even though that's also a nationally televised game. But Detroit on Thanksgiving isn't exactly something I'd sign up for. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be a a big game. Obviously, it, you have the two. Uh, most productive touchdown throwers in the NFL squaring off against each other. Stephon Diggs and Travis Kelsey on either side. Um, two really good offensive lines. Uh, some running backs who can get it done on a game-by-game -game basis, but don't necessarily do get it done on a game-by-game -game basis. Uh, the Chiefs and the, and the Bills kind of mirror each other in the backfield a little bit that way. Um, the defense is, well, the Bills have the clear advantage, I think, on defense, even with their injuries and Jordan Poyer being out. Uh, the defense has stood tall, um, especially in the second halves of all games this season. No matter who's out there, it seems that Leslie Frazier and Sean McDermott have dialed up whatever uh, coverages and schemes uh, that seem to work. Um, regardless of personnel and that's been a credit to them and it's why the bills opened as favorites at arrowhead stadium which was a surprise to me in fact I, we were together uh, uh sunday night when those lines came out and i had to show you my phone and say am i reading this right uh, before i sent out the tweet i was as good as the bills have been i just thought with the chiefs and their reputation and being at home uh that the chiefs would stand as the favorites uh, for this game or at least a pick them or something. So I guess what was your, what was your reaction uh, to, uh, to the bills being favored in this game? Yeah, I was surprised by that. And I thought because the bills open as one and a half point favorites. And I thought maybe it was a little bit of a bait to get people to bet on the chiefs and pull that back to a pick, which is what I think the spread should be in a game like that. If not the chiefs being favored by a very small number, but that line's actually moved in the other direction. The bills are now favored by, 
a full three points, which means if they were playing on a neutral field, if this somehow was the Super Bowl, which isn't going to happen with two AFC teams, but if it was, the Bills would be a six to seven point favorite, a full touchdown favorite on a neutral field. And the Bills are an excellent team on both sides of the ball and playing very, very well. The offense has never looked better than it did in that game against Pittsburgh, but I'm still not sure they're a full touchdown better than the team that's pretty much been their nemesis and knocked them out of the playoffs last year. That seems a little too generous. I'm not necessarily saying to bet on the Chiefs and take the points in this game. Or, well, hell, maybe I am. That seems safe to me that the Chiefs, even if they're going to lose, it's probably not going to be a blowout just because of the weaponry that they have. Uh, but if uh, if Patrick Mahomes gets rattled, which has happened from time to time, same, same thing could be said for Josh Allen over the last few years. He hasn't really shown it uh, a lot uh, over the last couple, but he shows the, the tendency to maybe get derailed for a, a series or two uh, when things aren't going well for him, which is what happened against the Dolphins. Um, it can happen. Um, but anyways, I would, I would tend, to, tend to bet on that it's going to be a close game. It's the first time Patrick Mahomes has ever been a home dog. Yeah, that's newsworthy. Um, I also I also think that uh, one of the sneaky influences in this game will be the kicker. Uh, Harrison Butker has been injured. He rolled his ankle on a kickoff a few weeks ago, and the Chiefs have had trouble finding somebody to replace him uh, so far. So if Harrison Butker can go, even if he's on a – it's his plant ankle, uh, if he's e even able to go – Who's to say how accurate he's going to be? Uh, maybe he, he loses a little distance. I don't know. But if Butker can't go, the Chiefs have struggled uh, to, to find that, uh, to find somebody of value uh, that's not going to miss kicks. And that could be a, an equation, uh, or that could factor into the equation. Um, let's talk about the Sabres. Uh, we have a couple of things we want to get to before we bring in uh, Tyler Dunn and talk about his new book. And uh, we're also going to talk more about the Bills uh, and the Chiefs. Um, it's a it's a dawn of a new day, Jonah. And there's a lot of symbolism there. Uh, last weekend, the Bills, uh, excuse me, the Sabres uh, named their new captain, Kyle Oposo, who everybody probably saw that coming. Uh, but still, uh, there's been a Kevin Adams extension. Don Granado gets a contract extension today, uh, and here the Sabres are about to open their season Thursday night at Key Bank Center against the Ottawa Senators. It seems to be a, a feel-good start to this season with all of these contract moves, personnel uh, things. Um, that's not to say that they're going to tear it up and end this playoff drought, but this really is a refreshing change if you're a, a Sabres fan. Yeah, and quite a difference from a year ago when they were going into a season. And even though there was some, the vibes were starting to pick up. If, if you paid attention to the preseason and the end of the season when Don Granato was the interim coach over a year ago. But when they were coming into the season last year, the fan base was very much turned off on the Sabres. The crowds were as low as they could be. Uh, Jack Eichel was still on the team, and there was really a split amongst the fan base whether – uh, the Sabres were to blame in the Jack Eichel situation or if Jack Eichel was to blame, but it was just a black cloud hanging over the franchise. And there was no belief that the Sabres were going to have a good year. They were at the very bottom of all sorts of power ratings. And I don't think there were very many Sabres fans that expected 
the Sabres to do very well. And they didn't do all that well in terms of making the playoffs, but they overperformed at the start of last season and at the end of last season. For a full third of the season in the final two months, they played at a pace of over 100 points at a playoff caliber level of hockey over 28 games, which is more than a third of the season. And if that continues, then they can make a serious run at ending this 11-year playoff drought, which is an NHL record and the second longest in North American sports at this point. I think it's interesting that there doesn't seem to be you know, pressure on this team or this management or the coaching staff to end the longest playoff drought. I think when the Bills were at a point where it was 11 going on 12 years, there was a lot of pressure. And even though that there was five more years in that Bills drought, uh, it's interesting that it does seem like while the Sabres could contend for the playoffs, nobody's really setting that as a firm expectation for this group. What were your thoughts on uh, Kyle Oposo as captain and uh, Rasmus Dahlin and Zemgis Gergensens as the uh, alternates, given that uh, there was a strong sentiment, at least from Sabres fans, that Alex Tuck should be the next captain. And he yeah. ends up not even getting one of the A's. Right. We ran a fan poll at WIVB.com. It was unscientific. People could vote more than one time, I think. But uh, Oposo got 47% of the vote, which is enough to be president in this country and most times. <laughs> but uh, Alex Tuck got 36% of the vote, which is a pretty high number. And, and I don't think in terms of how the Sabres were looking at things that maybe Alex Tuck was that strongly considered or the second pick for the captain, because obviously he's not going to have an A on his sweater, so he's not one of the alternates. Uh, Kyle Poso deserves to be the captain. He was more or less the captain last year. And he has the personality and the demeanor and the leadership quality that Don Granado and Kevin Adams want in the captain for this team right now. And really, nobody should be surprised at Oposo being the captain and who the alternate captains are. Because if we really look at last year, they started with two alternate captains and they ended with three alternate captains. Rasmus Dahlin started wearing the A toward the end of the season when there were injuries. And Kyle Oposo didn't have the C, but was acting like the captain of the team. And there was a lot of belief and whispers that he would be the new captain. So nothing that was officially decided and announced and embargoed and everything that happened with the uh, unveiling of this new C letter on Kyle Oposo's jersey was at all surprising to anybody that's paying attention. But I do find it a little bit curious in the context of, like you mentioned, a lot of fans think Alex Tuck is a captain caliber player and personality and he was the guy that came back in the trade for Jack Eichel and he, he really good. infused that dressing room and the fan base with a sense of somebody who wanted to be here juxtaposed against a guy who clearly wanted out in Jack Eichel like you said but I think that he he gave the fans what they were hungering for at that time and you also got that feeling from Sam Reinhardt he didn't want to be here you know there were just so many people who were disconnected Ryan O'Reilly who obviously wanted out and you there's other guys you can name but here was a guy who wanted to be here and it was like oxygen to the fan base that finally we can get to a point where we can believe that guys are going to want to come and play for our team as opposed to you know this darkness subsisting uh and just uh you know turning into um, you know, self-fulfilling prophecies that Buffalo is a, a place nobody wants to go or be. He's also a very good player who led the Sabres right. in plus minus last year. He was a minus three, and that was the best on the team from anybody that played a significant amount of games. 
And when he, because he wasn't healthy when they first made that Jack Eichel trade, when he got into the lineup and Peyton Krebs actually ended up getting called up for that same game, uh, the Sabres didn't turn it around record-wise right away, but a lot of things shifted. They won that first game, and there were some fits and starts after that, but soon after is when they started to be a much more competitive and they just looked like a team that could that wasn't at the bottom of the league, which they did look like at times early in the season last year. But once they got Alex Tuck in the lineup and other players healthier and the goalie situation healthier in that second half of the season, they looked like a real legit competent NHL team that could at least contend competent. for a playoff spot. Let's underscore, oh. put it in italics and bold, uh, competent. But they didn't always look like that in the last, right. much of the last decade. Um, and that's why I think they do have an excellent chance to make the playoffs this year. I don't know if they necessarily will because of how difficult the Eastern Conference and particularly the Atlantic Division is. I think they could be a team that flirts with 100 points and that not being enough. But I do believe, to borrow a phrase from Sean McDermott, their playoff caliber, and whether that actually means they're in that top eight or not, um, we'll see. That depends on other teams, and there's a complicated matrix of 10 to 12 different teams and how their seasons are going to go. But if some of these older teams in the East, Boston and Washington and Pittsburgh, if they fall apart a little bit or if a team tunes out its coach and has a lost year, if Tampa Bay, you know, doesn't have the emotional strength to keep coming back again and again as they have the last three years, then maybe the Sabres can claim one of those spots. I think they're primed to be a team in that position. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll finally be a worthwhile season to monitor from the standings uh, standpoint, uh, which is something that Sabres fans haven't really done, with the exception of uh, an outlier winning streak uh, here and there that makes it interesting for three or four weeks. Uh, other than that, it's been uh, a, a futile exercise to even bother uh, taking a look at the standings to see where the Sabres are in relation to the playoff teams. Uh, just one more point on the uh, the captaincy and the uh, A's. Um, I think what when you give Rasmus Dahlin the A in this situation, to me, uh, all right, well, let me break it down this way. Uh, let's let's work from the top on down. Uh, Kyle Oposo, I've done a couple of stories on him, uh, and especially in my uh, most recent one during the off season in which I interviewed Don Granado and Kevin Adams and Zemgis Gergensen's for it. It was clear that he was the favorite to be the captain and he probably already was the captain. There was some tongue in cheek things said um, during the interviews uh, that it was pretty clear that Kawaposo was going to be the captain and it just needed to be announced at the right time when hockey teams like to make those announcements uh, right before the season. There's some pomp and circumstance that's, that's uh, involved in that because it is such an honor uh, in the National Hockey League compared to any other sport um, that they think the world of him. And really, Don Granato was saying those things during the last regular season as we're into the last, let's say, couple of months of the 2021-2022 season. He was really coming out hard uh, with praise for Kyle Oposo's leadership and uh, all the things that he does for the team, all the things that he does for Don Granato himself. Uh, that borderline, you know, assistant coach type thing. And really the only um, wrinkle I thought, and I believe we had John Vogel on uh, at the time to talk about it uh, on Tim Graham and friends um, was that John Vogel's feeling being that Kyle Oposo is probably the next captain, unless there's a feeling of just turning the page 
Kyle Oposo was a guy who's been around. Do you want to have a dawn of a new era type situation and have uh, Alex Tuck hold down the captaincy until you're ready to give it to, Ra to um, Rasmus Dahlin? Now, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, and Oposo has a great season. He's on the power play. He's on the penalty kill. He does all the little things. And to me, and I think it made sense also, uh, just counter in uh, just a, a counter to John's thought on that um, of how it might go if they went with Alex Tuck is I think that the C the Sabres value the fact that Kyle Poso went through this dark time and that adds to the respect that he's gotten uh, from the other guys in the organization, not just players, but everybody within uh, KeyBank Center. Uh, but anyway, so my extended uh, point on this is this really is shaping up to me uh, with Zemgis Gergensen's getting the other A because of his veteran uh, status and the fact that he's viewed upon as a glue guy and, and he had the A already and that Rasmus Dahlin has a permanent A, that this will be whenever Kyle Poso stops being the captain, Rasmus Dahlin's team. And he seems to be a type of guy who's built, who's, who's emerging as that leader, character guy, motivational speaker, doing the right things, the competitive drive. Now, you're around these guys uh, way more than I am, Jonah, but what's been your sense of Darlene's evolution uh, as, you know, um, pimple-faced kid uh, at, the, at the draft a few years ago who looked like, you know, you know he should be maybe bagging groceries at Dash's uh, to bona fide NHL uh, leader? Well, it's, it's interesting that maybe you mentioned uh, – the facial complexion because the, the phrase that people keep using about him, teammates and even coaches, and it's been written about in the media is comfortable in his own skin, that he just seems more mature and relaxed in his role. Maybe he doesn't feel the pressure that he had felt first of all, coming in as a 18, 19 year old rookie. And then quickly when he was 20, 21 years old and Jack Eichel was either hurt or on the way out being traded, he was thrust into being the face of the franchise when maybe his personality and his emotional makeup and his game weren't ready for that. And now he seems he's ready to fully realize his potential. And he did that a little bit last year. He was an all-star. He's been a talented and productive offensive defenseman for a couple of years now. He's had some issues, especially early last year, on the defensive side and being a really reliable defensive defenseman. I think that he got a lot better at that over uh, the course of the season and is probably ready to be much more of a two-way impact defensive player. He already led the team in ice time last year and maybe even the year before, and he'll do so again. And he does seem like he's on his way to being this team's next captain. But there's other, there's Alex Tuck and there's Dylan Cousins and there's other talented forwards that were high draft picks that could maybe emerge as the future captain of this team. And I think that Owen Power coming in maybe has, it's almost like, you know, when somebody's an only child and then they become a big brother and that matures them a little bit, it feels like now that he's not the young uh, teenage defenseman with a little too much pressure on him to produce right away, that's allowed Rasmus Dahlin to blossom into this next phase in his career, which is really being a guy that can compete for the Norris Trophy if the Sabres have a good enough record. But I want to make one more point and then ask you a question about Kyle Okoso being the captain. Just from the doom and gloom perspective, is there an issue if, Potentially, with Kyle Koso's age, he's 34 years old. He'll be 35 at the very end of the season and into the postseason if the Sabres reach it. He has an injury history. He's in the last year of his contract. 
he plays on the fourth line right now, or that's where we're projecting him to be in the lineup. If, if your captain isn't one of your most productive players and isn't one of your most available players, is that an issue? I think it was an issue when Brian Gianta was the captain a few years ago, that he was too far past his prime to really be the leader of the team. You've covered the NHL a lot longer than I do and been in the locker rooms more. I think you understand a bit more of the culture than I do. How important is it for your captain to be one of your best players and the guy that can go out and make things happen on the ice when it's necessary? Yeah, I'm just pulling up his numbers here. I, I know that he is, you know, finger quotes, a fourth line player, but Kyle Oposo played uh, a lot on every unit and he played 17 minutes a game last year. He had eight power play goals. Um, he, have a, he had a couple shorthanded goals. You know, he plays on every unit. And He's going to be he on was, the fourth line tomorrow. Now, now the, the Sabres' fourth line maybe plays more than other fourth lines, or they rely on them more. He was, I think it was the second line when they started last year, but it's it's a checking line. It's got Rasmus Asplund at center and Zemgus Gergensen. It's not the most offensively skilled of the Sabres' four lines, but maybe calling it the fourth line is a little bit demeaning to the players on the line and the leadership that they provide. Yeah, and I think that his – his presence, the experience, the fact that he's been here since 2016, um, the money that he makes, uh, and I know that that's the type of thing that can go both ways. Uh, does the production match the money? Well, no, at times it didn't, but that was because he was buried uh, by Ralph Kruger uh, here and there, and he had trouble uh, getting on the ice. He, he was playing less than 13 minutes a night with uh, Ralph Kruger as coach. Now he's up to 17 minutes a night, uh, 45 points last year. Uh, he's the type of guy based on what teammates say is who makes it a point to earn his money. He may not be doing it or over the course of time, there were periods where the, the statistical production didn't match, but he was doing it in practice. He was doing it uh, in the weight room. He was doing it on the road in mentorships and things like that. So I think there's a lot of things that he does behind the scenes. And in thinking of a captain, now I know that this was not particularly the greatest time in Sabres history, but I'm looking back at when, Lindy Ruff made Stu Barnes the captain uh, after Michael Pekka's departure. You know, Stu Barnes was playing 17 minutes a night, 20 goal scorer, 45 points uh, in uh, you know, that was 99, 2000, the year before he became the captain, he has 43 points uh, the next season, or excuse me, that was the season right before he was captain. The season he's captain, he scores 17 goals, 31 assists, 48 points. He's playing 18 and a half minutes a night for a really bad team. Um, you know, so yes, I think that there are guys who maybe don't get the prime minutes. They're not your superstar player. Um, but let's say, like, who on this team is a superstar player? I mean, who would you give it to? And I know we just had the discussion, Alex Tuck, based on the lift that he gave the team, but he is also relatively new. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, Darlene, of course. Do you Is he ready? Is it maybe too soon for Darlene to be the captain? So I get your point. And well, also I mean, to the in, and to the injury aspect of it, too, because of the head injuries, the head and neck. Um, since that got straightened out, now I'm not saying that this is going to last forever. Uh, he, he is 34, like you said. Um, he comes back pretty quickly from these things. He might miss a game or two, but that's the style of that he plays. He, he's a physical player. He's not afraid to... Uh, to take a hit or give a hit. Uh, he's not going to drop the gloves or anything like that, but he, he mixes it up and, and, and puts himself in, in, in difficult uh, areas of the ice. 
Um, he plays the game, as Don Granado told me for the, the most recent story I did. He plays the game we want all of our guys to play. And so when you look at him, uh, model your game after Kyle Poso. And I think that really that at the, that's the essence of what you, your captain should be, right? Yeah, I just think sometimes you need your captain to be the guy that goes out and scores a goal or makes something happen on the ice. And not to say Kyle Poso can't do that, but I just wonder if he's injured or if age catches up to him a bit earlier in the season than some are expecting and he's not able to be the captain on the ice that he is in the locker room, how that affects the leadership. And I'm not expecting this to happen with the personalities and the chemistry the Sabres have, but it's happened with other teams where younger players who were better than the captain kind of undermine the leadership of the captain. And they, there was a bit of a leadership vacuum if a player who's a better player and thinks maybe he should be the captain starts kind of Don Granado's talked about how many leaders the Sabres have, but maybe if you have too many leaders and they're of different ages and different points in their career and different agendas, then you're not all leading in the same direction. And well, then that's player, where your coach comes in. That's right, where your right. coach and general manager. Right. Come and in. actually, I, I think we should trust Don Granado and Kevin Adams for understanding that this team needs this type of captain at this point in time that it's probably a one or two year arrangement and somebody else like Rasmus Dahlin or one of the younger players will rise into that captain role uh, when Kyle Oposo either retires or is no longer on the team. But one player, and I'm not saying he's going to be at all an issue or a malcontent, one player who never gets mentioned as a potential captain, I think he might be the best player on the team and at least offensively the most important player of the team, he's the highest played player on the team, is Jeff Skinner. He scored 40 goals before. He had 33 last year. Tage Thompson had 38 goals last year, and is the number one center. So those are captain-type players. They're, they're the most important players to the offense, uh, but they're not really – not, they don't have A's either. They're not really in the mix at all in this leadership group, uh, even though they might have leadership roles, but not with the official letters on their sweater. Sounds like that would be a good story. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Sounds like a good story. <laughs> One thing I did want to get into, though, a little bit, just to throw some numbers out there, is the youth on this team, especially with the Sabres and their forwards and their core, because we're talking about Kyle Oposo is the second oldest player on the team. They have Craig Anderson and going to be the starting goaltender to start the season. We'll see if he's the number one goaltender all year long, but right now he's probably the Sabres' top goaltender. He's the oldest player in the league at 41 years old. Even with those two players on the roster, the Sabres have the youngest roster in the league this year 25.6 years average age they weren't the youngest team in the league last year so they're even younger than they were a year ago and if you take Anderson out of the mix if it's just the skaters they're a team with an average age under 25 and they have a core of nine players who were drafted in the first 34 picks you got to go down there to get JJ Paterka in there but nine players who average pick number 13 in the draft at average age under 23 so this is a huge core of young pretty much first-round caliber players. They got five more first-round picks that could be joining the team in the future. There's a lot of skill, a lot of youth, and a lot of – it's like these defenses in the NFL where a team is bad for a long time and all of a sudden they got a first-round player at every position. The Sabres are trending toward having that type of roster if they don't already have it right now very soon. Yeah, and that's – is I don't know if that's good or bad. I think it's good. It's good for the future, but for this season, what do we think? 
it could be what holds them back, their overall youth, the fact that they're younger and less experienced than they were a year ago, that guys like Jack, uh, Jack Quinn. Now I'm getting myself confused. <laughs> the guys like Quinn and Paterka are weren't on the team last year, and they're coming up from Rochester, and they're NHL rookies. They were on the team for a few games, but that they could actually be a half a step behind overall as a team, their development that they were at the end of last season. But I think it's a really good thing for the future of the franchise and probably how they finish in the second half of the year that they have so much talent that's young, but it's only going to get older. Like if this core group is around age 23 now, then a year from now they're going to be age 24. And that's – guys like Casey Middlestad, who battled a lot of injuries last year and wasn't really ready to be a first-round top-10 pick caliber player earlier in his career is probably – ready to do that now. Dylan Cousins seems like he's ready to have a breakout. So there are a lot of, and when I guess this is what's tied to youth and this is where, you know, youth is so fascinating and, and curious is there are a lot of X factors. You just named a lot of guys and even guys who've been around like Casey Middlestat, an X factor, because if he's healthy, if he can keep going when he, when things are going well for Casey Middlestat, he's a, he's a really effective player. Um, the young guys, what are they going to do? Uh, what's the goaltending going to look like? There are a lot of X factors that if they swing in the right direction, uh, the Sabres could become a dangerous team. And if you look around the league at guys like Kale McCarr and the defenseman in Detroit, Moritz Sider and Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid, there's other players that star players that have come in the league and been really good around age 19, 20 and 21. The Sabres seem to have had less luck with that with their draft picks. And Jack Eichel was good right away, but some of the other guys weren't so great at 18, 19, 20 years old and got better as they got older. But I think some of these guys the Sabres have now, Owen Power in particular, might be ready to be really good NHL players without the two, three, four-year growing period that some of the other Sabres prospects have needed in past seasons. Uh, before we get to Tyler Dunn here, Jonah, I want to bring up uh, Niagara University's hockey team. Uh, some good things going on there, and I know that uh, you're doing some uh, coverage of them and how closely you look at the colleges. Uh, and they're, uh, What's going on with them? Well, so Niagara opened up with a sweep in two games at Omaha, and for the first time as a Division One program, they're 2-0. They were last 2-0 in 1998, and that was before Niagara hockey started playing Division One hockey. And they're receiving votes in both of the national polls. They're basically 22 and one for USCHO, 25 in another one, USA Hockey Magazine, I believe that is. They're top 20 polls. So they're receiving votes outside the poll. They got a home series this week, Friday night, Saturday night against American International, which is maybe the best team in Atlantic hockey, a four time Atlantic hockey champion, probably the favorites again. Uh, so maybe the say, maybe uh, the Purple Eagles had a hot weekend and they come back to earth here, but if they can get one of these two games with AIC or even the split, they're probably going to be ranked in the top 20. If they get both of the wins, uh, they could be on their way to having a good year. They haven't had a winning season in a long time. I think it's been maybe eight years since Niagara's had a winning season. They, they had a, some NCAA runs in the early two thousands and I used to cover the team years ago, but it's been a while. They, they were picked ninth in the conference in the preseason poll and Canisius was picked more, I think fifth in the middle of the pack. Niagara won an exhibition game at Canisius before the season, an exhibition, but that might be another sign that this Niagara team is at least better than Canisius and going to be more competitive. 
So it'll be interesting to see how this weekend goes, if they just had one uh, good series or if they can continue that. Yeah, that's pretty intriguing. You know, that was always uh, considered uh, uh, a source of pride within local amateur hockey is uh, Niagara University was always kind of just on the fringe. You were wondering when they were going to break through. There was you know, talk of maybe even uh, improving their facility to take it to the next level. And they always just, Dave Burkholder always just seemed to have them right there. And, and then it, it fell apart. Um, well, the, so it's nice to see them on the mend. The program took a step backwards when they, when the college hockey association conference or was it college hockey America, mm-hmm. when that conference folded and they had to go down to Atlantic hockey, which has less scholarships and the program has never really, gotten back to the level it was when it was competing at the top of the CHA. And it's still, I think, that case because of the scholarship levels. But, you know, it's an automatic bid into the NCAA tournament. If you can be the best team in Atlantic hockey, you can be in the NCAA tournament. And the way college hockey works, you can make a run from there. All right, Jonah, that's a good wrap-up. Let's, uh, let's take a little break here and come back and talk with Tyler Dunn. What do you say about that? Sounds like fun. All right, everybody uh, hang on one second. Uh, We'll be back with Tyler Dunn right after this. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Um, pleased, quite pleased, satisfied, grateful uh, to have a longtime F, uh, my first podcast partner. Back when we started a podcast at the Buffalo News many years ago, um, Tyler Dunn. And uh, Tyler is, uh, we like to have him on the show from time to time, but he has uh, a book to promote, which is pretty cool to say, right? I mean, a book, because <laughs> I know these things are um, just so nasty and grueling uh, to put together. To do it in your spare time while also holding down your regular gig. Uh, Tyler, how does it feel to be a published author? It, you just put it perfectly, man. It is a, a labor of love in every sense of the cliche. Like you throw that term around and you really don't know what it means. But um, it was a crazy 2021 to have my years right. Yeah, into 2022 when yeah. Serafino, our son, is born in July. The football season begins, doing go-long stuff, sign that book contract. And I feel like our whole family has just been on this like never-ending marathon of a full sprint. Um, but it was fun. I mean, everybody will tell you, you've been there. When you write a book, when you have a project like this, you better freaking love it because it is at the forefront of your brain like every second of every day. It's the first thing you think of when you wake up from setting up the interviews to flying around the country to sitting down to transcribing to mapping out how these long, I mean, each chapter is basically a long form story. We'll get into it and then how it all fits together. Um, I loved it, man. It was a lot of fun. So to actually hold a book and 
you know, see the real thing. It, it, it's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. It's pretty cool. It's a heavy book. Uh, it's called The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football. And uh, you have it there on your screen. I'm going to hold up my copy to prove that I do have one. Uh, and it is fantastic. I, it allows you, because of the way you wrote it, uh, you can bounce around from chapter to chapter. You don't necessarily have to go in order, although the chronological aspect uh, gives you context of the guy who comes next. But if you want to go right to the Rob Gronkowski chapter, you can do that without any problem. I uh, highly recommend uh, the book. I'm not just uh, saying that because Tyler's on the podcast. I think that if I didn't like the book, I just wouldn't have him on the podcast. So there it is. I would hope I'd be so. like, you know, That's Tyler, right. I'm busy. Uh, Tell me to busy. get lost. <laughs> yeah, I'm busy for the next several weeks. Uh, maybe when, uh, maybe next, uh, during the playoffs, let's, let's have you on the podcast. And by then the book would have been a distant memory. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about the book. Um, and, and we'll get into that and, and the, the blood and guts of blood and guts, you know, putting it together, maybe who was the toughest interview to get. Uh, I'm sure you have some behind the scenes stories about how it came together, but um, while it's fresh, uh, I want to ask you just uh, your thoughts on the Buffalo Bills and they're going into a matchup against a guy who should be in the book, Travis Kelsey and uh, a revolution. How about this? Can you revolutionize the tight end position anymore? And I recall writing a story about Rob Gronkowski maybe six or seven years ago and going back to all the times when so-and-so revolutionized the position. Mike Ditka, John Mackey, Ozzie Newsome, Kellen Winslow. Everybody was revolutionizing the tight end position. And now here you have Travis Kelsey, who, hell, I didn't think it was going to be so soon after Rob Gronkowski uh, that I would be saying, I have a new favorite tight end of all time. Really? You're going, you're going to that length. He's fun to Kelsey? watch, man. I think he's better than Gronk. Man, I'm not ready to take that leap. Um, I think Rob Gronkowski is, is the greatest tight end ever for God, for so many reasons. I mean, the timing of his arrival with where the league was going and just how he made us fall in love with, all of this beautiful violence and belligerence and party, right. and the whole package of Rob Gronkowski. It's, I feel like Kelsey, right. When Kelsey came on, it was kind of like, Oh, he's a knockoff of Gronkowski. Like he's trying to be this, you know, soy fiesta in his own brand. You know, he's, he's ripping off Rob Gronkowski. He's, he's mountain lightning, right. Dr. Thunder to the real thing. <laughs> uh, but he's Travis Kelsey is one tight end that isn't like featured at length. He comes up a lot in, in, in blood and guts. Uh, because personally, I, you know, I granted, a lot of it really is up to me. It's, it's subjective. It's, it's who I, in, in talking to people around the league, like these 15 people who really did preserve the sport and teach us a lot about life and, and one kind of led to the next. And I, I tried to Travis Kelsey. The fact that I didn't get him isn't the reason he's not in the book. I mean, I guess a lot goes into that. Uh, but to answer your question, I mean, there's no denying how talented the guy is. He's unbelievable. I mean, he's, in a lot of ways, he is kind of doing the same stuff Robert Murkowski did with Tom Brady. And we don't talk enough about that rapport with the quarterback where Mahomes and Bra or Mahomes and Kelsey, I mean, they're turning it into a game within the game where they're seeing stuff out there that only they see second reaction, improvisational stuff in the red zone. I mean, my guy, what do you have, 29 yards and four touchdowns? Just right. a ridiculous stat line where you only have that kind of a stat line if you're intellectually on the level of – your quarterback. And that's really what Gronkowski had 
with Brady, everybody thinks that Gronk was this like big dumb idiot, this Neanderthal, like with a club in his hand. I mean, the guy was brilliant. He he had great, you know this. I mean, he, football IQ, like, football IQ. His, his, he had some book smarts too. Like Julian Edelman said, with numbers, like he's really good with numbers, and I think he played. I, I know some of his math a, a, a little bit. What's the Gronkowski that? DNA. There's a lot of intelligence in the Gronkowski DNA, as posed by Chris and Glenn and uh, the other older one. Um, All of them except Rob. Right. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm not. I shouldn't say. That. But I, I know yeah. math teachers that he had at Williamsville North that might dispute some of uh, Julian Edelman's statements about his uh, <laughs> miracle. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> But one guts part two, and then we'll look at that side, right? What have you learned, Tyler, since we're just talking about matchups here? Is there anything about in your research of this book and writing it? Um, because the tight end play is really very much at the cutting edge of football strategy right now. Uh, teams have been trying to game plan against tight ends since Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez entered the league together, and Bill Belichick revitalized that position to more than what – what teams were doing. Yes. There was a Tony Gonzalez in the league at the time and, um, um, and Antonio Gates, they were doing things, but seeing Gronk and Aaron Hernandez, I think opened the th open things up for, um, uh, for a lot of offensive coordinators and offensive minded coaches as chess pieces and moving them around. So as you've, as you've written this book, any secrets or did you come up with any kind of common threads on how to defend these guys? It's man, it, you can try a little bit of everything. And, and I absolutely tried to sprinkle in, you know, that element of the, the, the rise of the tight end at every turn, you know, talking to DBs and just about every era all the way through from Mike Wagner covering, you know, Ozzie Newsome and, and Kellen Winslow and that era of tight end where, it was just ridiculous where Kellen Winslow is just running over people. Ozzie Newsom is jumping, you know, like he's off of a trampoline. It was, you know, he, there's times where he's like, I, what, what do I do back here? And Lester Hayes, you know, he's facing Dave Casper in practice every day. By the way, Dave Casper, it's like a mini, there's many chapters within the book. Dave Casper wanted nothing to do with the book. <laughs> he's like, I don't do interviews unless, you know, one of my teammates died, which to each their own, but we've got a little, a little segment on him. And he's Lester Hayes says that he's convinced that you got to look at the DNA that some way, somehow Dave Casper is related to Travis Kelsey. He's like, you know, look, look at the lineage there. Look at who, whose mom is whose mom and whose dad is whose dad, because he sees the same exact tight end that he faced, you know, practicing and practice out in Travis Kelsey. But yeah, I think it's, how do you defend these guys? I mean, you can, you can try a linebacker, but as Tony Gonzalez showed, you know, that's probably not going to work out. If you're unbelievably athletic, you can try a corner, you know, he might have the cover skills, but I mean, you really want to have a corner try to tackle Rob Gronkowski in the open field. So I think that's why you've seen the game, not just the league, but high school, college pro, the game has evolved to trying to find linebackers who are maybe 230, 235 and can run and can hang a little bit with these tight ends. But then schematically the counter is, all right, well, we're just going to run the ball down your throat. I mean, and you saw that last season with you when know, the Patriots had that winning streak, Jonathan Taylor's running all over the place, AJ Dillon in Green Bay. It was like this revitalization of the, of the run game. Like it's 1995. You see some of that early this season. So there's always a punch. There's always a counter punch. I, I don't think you can stop, you know, 
when we're talking about the elite of the elite, right? The Gronks, the Kelsey's, the Kittles, where, what makes Kittle so dangerous is he's such an unbelievable blocker that he, he loves to block. It's genuinely something he enjoys to do that when he does go off on a route, when he does release, it's like, Oh my gosh, I'm wide open. Like that blocking helps his ability as a receiver. Cause it's an actual threat. Like you're defending George Kittle. You have to be worried about him decleating you and stuffing you into the dirt. And that's going to open up the passing game in so many ways. So yeah, I, I, I don't think he can. I don't think he can defend these players. But are the Bills one of the best examples with Matt Milano and to a lesser extent, Tremaine Edmonds and some of their other players? It seems like they cover tight ends as well as any defense in the league right now. And Matt Milano still got roasted right in the AFC Championship game, and he still has all kinds of problems against Kelsey. Where I, I think Matt Milano is one of the best linebackers in football, and he's worth his contract and, and double that at this point, but – yeah, I think he, you know, he'll, he'll probably have some success. I think you just kind of hope to get a stop once in a while, right? Against a tight end like this, an offense like this, you're not, you're not kidding yourself. You don't think we're going to actually shut the Chiefs down. It's can we steal a possession here or there? Can, can Matt Milano stick with Kelsey up the seam once or twice and get a hand on the ball to, to force a punt? Like that, that would be a win. And they haven't had many of those wins against the Chiefs. So I – can he do it? Absolutely. Because Matt Milano seems like a different player this year. He's always been really good. It seems like he's even taken a, a, a bigger step in, in this 2022 season. Yeah, he really seems to be reading plays a little bit faster. He's sticking with, uh, when it comes to pass coverage, his his guy that much, you know, just a couple seconds longer. He just seems to be there. And maybe that's from six years in the same system, Um or just the evolution, but uh, yeah, it seems to be, you know, you think a guy peaks after three or four years, he seems to have made another jump somehow uh, this season playing a playing very well. Um, Tyler. And I, I think I can guess on this and I, I'm sure we've even had this conversation at some point, maybe even it, it inspired uh, the idea for the book, but uh, it, I love the tight end position uh, because it is exactly what you say. It's the blood and guts. It's still football, like old school throwback football, but at the uh, forefront of passing strategy. These guys still stretch the field. They can anyway. They can get up the seam. They can make plays. You, uh, They're the last really rugged, um, you know, uh, old school, I keep using that phrase, old school football player that you draft onto your fantasy team. Yeah. You know, you're not, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, an etiology of the tight end, which I think is summed up very nicely by your title. What was the, uh, can you give us the thought process of when you were getting this ball rolling as to, yes, I want to write a book about these guys. Guy, well, you, you know me well, Tim, we've, we've shared many a beer together and it's been way too long since we've done that. So we got to fix that ASAP, but I'm kind of an old soul. You know, I love the physicality of the game, the violence of the game, the fact that, Football isn't for everybody, right? Like we all have that moment in Pop Warner and you're, you know, well, I guess we were doing hitting drills that probably aren't allowed anymore, bull in the ring and <laughs> the like, the Oklahoma drill, whatever. Like when you, when you get hit or you hit somebody, it's like, okay, this isn't soccer. This isn't basketball. This isn't baseball. This is different. You know, it's, it's going to hurt and I'm going to hurt my friends. And this is either for me or it's not. It's like a, it's a nutrition that other sports don't have on top of, playing under the lights, the pressure, the adrenaline rush. It's so much beauty to the game that 
I don't think you can get in other sports where that that's football, right? Like that's real football. The fact that it's not for everybody. And then you extrapolate that you go to the NFL. These are the best of the best. These are the gladiators out there signing up, taking on this risk in a profession that is unlike anything else. We don't go to, you know, the office and pummel our coworkers into oblivion and then, you know, go into a cold tub afterwards and, and talk about our families. Like that's just, it's not normal what these guys do. I feel like the last 10, 15 years, to get to your question, the impetus for it, I feel like it is getting to be a softer game. The overcorrections are a little out of control. I mean, look at week five of the NFL where you know, Chris Jones, all he does is tackle a quarterback. It's roughing the passer. I, I'm not minimizing, diminishing CTE, concussions. All of that is very real. And thank God for League of Denial and all the coverage on that front. But the, the, the overcorrection to what we're seeing today kind of puts the game itself in, in peril, right? It might seem a little strong, but I think football is changing. And the one position where real football, violence, everything that we love about it, the reason we're all watching – it's it's preserved right there at tight end because you're not just a lineman just kind of lost as an anonymous you know cog in a machine like the tight end you got to do that stuff like you got to hit other 300 pounders but then you also get to catch a pass and run somebody over and make a play in the end zone and celebrate and let your personality shine and there's there's so much that goes into why tight ends um are the ones with these crazy personalities but i, I feel like just overall to get into this book, it, that that's where the hope lies for me. Like there, there's hope in real football at the tight end position, because until you make it flag, until you make it touch, until you go, you know, that far and you got to hit, you got to tackle tight ends are going to be a hell of a, fun, a hell of a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. Let's stay on that topic of uh, the inconsistency of the calls, just because you pulled at that thread and we're going to keep talking about the book all throughout this interview. So I know we'll get back to that. I want, so I want to, just make a couple of points on uh, on what's going on in the NFL today while it's while it's on my mind and I don't forget. As um, anybody who's read my work or seen this podcast, I am hyper vigilant when it comes to head injuries and protecting players, especially when they are uh, unable to defend themselves in certain situations in games. That said, you know the flag on Tom Brady was bullshit. Uh, the hit. Um, on Isaiah McKenzie was clean. That was not a dirty hit, as even though he was concussed on the play. And as he said on his on your he podcast, he loved it. By the way, he loved Temper- getting hit like that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was not a dirty hit. Uh, Shaq Lawson on. And by the way, Eric Wood even tweeted during the game from the broadcast booth. How is that not a penalty uh, <laughs> on uh, the play in which Isaiah McKenzie got hurt. And you watch it again. And the broadcast is like, how can it be a penalty? The guy's making a tackle. Uh, Isaiah McKenzie's a ball carrier. He's going to the ground. That's a play that you just can't er- erase from football or uh, the play at the end of the game uh, Sunday against the Steelers, uh, Shaq Lawson trying to tackle Kenny Pickett Steelers fans going ape shit that it was a dirty hit. And, and he went after his legs. Well, yes, he was running with the football. And just because he's a quarterback doesn't mean you're not allowed to tackle him. You do go for the knees. You know, you go for the knees on blocks and tackles. I mean, that's part of how do you get a guy down. So anyway, there's so much confusion, I think, even among people who really follow the sport closely about what is and isn't even a penalty anymore. By, by Not even the, subject, the subjective aspect of it, the objective uh, criteria on what goes into 
whether a quarterback gets tackled like Tom Brady did, um, which happened Monday night uh, against uh, Carr and was not called. And people are like, well, wait, this was a penalty yesterday. Well, it shouldn't have been a penalty yesterday. Anyways, that's just a little rant. Uh, what, your, your thoughts, Tyler, on where things are from, from an officiating standpoint and, uh, and player safety. I couldn't agree more. It's all pathetic and it's just speaks to the hypocrisy of the NFL, which is par for the course where, I mean, I just want the league to be honest. I'm with you. We've both written so many stories about honest and consistent, be consistent too. Honest and consistent, like concussions. it, It is a problem, right? Like players dealing with head trauma later in life. It is, it can be horrifying. I remember talking to Kevin Cobb a few years back. I mean, when he had the three, four concussions, like back to back to back and the symptoms got worse and worse and worse. And he's driving down Southwestern Boulevard and he gets into a haze and he almost has a collision. That's chilling and horrifying and awful. But I, that doesn't mean that you have to literally throw a flag anytime a defensive lineman tackles a quarterback. I don't, I don't get it. It's like the NFL is trying to find a middle ground, this magical utopian middle ground that doesn't exist. Like just, just own it. It's, it's a violent game and that's, that's okay. Like they're not, they're, they're trying to have it both ways, right? Like they want the octagon. They want the violence. They want everybody who want, loves that element of the game to keep watching, right? Cause they're not making a flag football. It's still football yet. They still want to appease everybody who, is maybe squeamish at any collision and the moms at home who aren't so sure they want their sons to play. And so let's try to soften the game to that extreme. They're trying to check every box. You're trying to have it both ways. And they're trying to find this, this weird middle ground that doesn't exist. I, I think that if they were just honest with themselves and consistent and said, Hey, guess what? It's a violent game. There's an element of risk, but that risk, that's what makes football so entertaining to watch and so fulfilling to play that these players are willing to put their bodies on the line. Um, they'll never publicly talk like that, but that that's the reality in which I think the league has to live. Unfortunately, it just, it kind of, you know what happens to like, we all lose our minds, right? Like we lost our minds over the Grady Jarrett flag over the Chris Jones flag. And the NFL knows that we're going to lose our minds and they know that we're going to be mad that football's changing before our eyes but they know that we're going to move on to the next shiny object the next day. We're all going to set our fantasy lineups on Wednesday right. and put in our waiver claims and we're not going to give a shit. And they guess kind of move along. And the reason I lose my mind is like, no, that happened. That's in the zeitgeist. And that is chip, chip, chipping away at the football we love over time. And that's concerning because it's going to turn into something we don't resemble. I don't think it's just the NFL though. You can go to the targeting rule in college and, down into the high schools and even youth is transitioning to youth football is transitioning to maybe being a flag football sport and not allowing tackling and contact until players are much older. I think it's the moral quandary of football in itself, where we still want this game that's become America's sport, but without the violence, it's almost like if, you know, boxing, you're only allowed to punch each other in the numbers now. It's a great point. I, I, it's hard to quantify. I feel like everybody still takes their cue from the NFL things trickle down in that regard, but that that's true. And, that, and that's another debate because I can, I can see maybe not letting third and fourth graders like ram into each other and hitting drills. Like I'm not sitting here saying, Hey, 
Let's go. Let's line, let's line up some bull in the ring right now and beat the hell out of each other, third graders. Like, I get it. Like, there's we have learned some pretty important things about head trauma, and there's data, there's science, there's stuff that we can lean on. Um, but I feel like it's one of those things when you know it, you know it. When you see it, you see it. And we can we should all be able to kind of agree, like, okay, this is okay, and this is extreme. Great point on the targeting. Every Saturday, it's the same BS. Like, wh- that player's getting thrown out of the game for that. It, it doesn't compute. So the blood and guts, how tight ends save football, the book by Tyler Dunn, which is available next week uh, in bookstores near you or any online place that sells books. Is there a direct site? Can you get it right off of go long? You, you can, you know, we had a deal for a while, but the best way to buy it, honestly, is probably how we buy everything. Just hop on Amazon, <laughs> just go on Amazon, you know, get your Kindle, get your audiobook, or if you really love us, go ahead and uh, get that hard copy, man. So, um, yeah, that's where we want to see that ranking creep up, right? Absolutely. So um, tell me, uh, Tyler, what was your favorite chapter to write and why? Oh my God, Tim, that's a tough one because man, they, these guys were just a riot. All of them. I mean, for different reasons, Jackie Smith, the trauma he went through from a drop changing his life for decades was like, I felt like I was sitting next to my grandfather who you met, right? I think you met Huey down at uh, the Scott hollow. Uh, Jackie Smith, bless his heart. That's right. Fern Lundquist and that broadcast. Uh, I think number one, though, has to be Jeremy Shockey. Like, there's a reason he is front and center on the cover of this book. And you might think, Jeremy Shockey, didn't he? You know, his best season was his rookie year, and he didn't hit 1,000 yards. I, I get that. But the impact that he had on the, on the position and preserving everything we're talking about here was profound. I mean, he is the closest the game had seen to Mike Dicka since Mike Dicka at a moment they really needed Jeremy Shockey. But – more than anything, he was just fun as hell. I mean, we got together down at Miami Beach at a yard house, and he, he just storms into the bar, points to his go-to bar stool. We sit down. He orders his drink. He talks a mile a minute for two and a half hours, and it was like I was in the middle of a hurricane, and holy shit, then he was gone. He had to get a haircut. He hopped on a scooter, and he was gone. There, there are some stories that he shares that I think will uh, make you laugh, maybe make you cry. Um, got me a high school senior. Right, so we're sitting at a bar. He reenacts the whole thing at a bar. Uh, when he's a high school senior at a bar, a dude from across the way threw a bottle at him. He said he avoided it like the Matrix. He ducks down like this, and the guy came after him, and he, he took his head, just bashed it in, starts beating the hell out of him, sends him to the hospital, and who's like the nurse there to like check in on, on the, the guy that Jeremy Shockey beats up? Jeremy Shockey's mom. So she's like covering up her name so he wouldn't connect the dots. So <laughs> there's a lot of that mixed in with Jeremy Great Shockey, but – uh, Brandon Bean's favorite it. player, I think maybe a favorite all-time player is uh, Jeremy Shockey. And if it's not his all-time, it's among his his very short list of uh, players, uh, favorite players. Um, I did not know that. That's awesome. Very cool. I can see why. Rob Gronkowski's favorite tight end, at least one point in time, he told me. He uh, wrote Jeremy Shockey a letter as a kid actually from uh from buffalo new york so you're right yeah he looked up to him and we get into that connection as well he, he basically kind of picked up where shocky left off what was the hardest interview to lock down and of course you had some you mentioned casper already some who you didn't get so let's not say the ones you 
Well, okay, let's start with there. Who was the one you wanted most, or is there a couple, but you just couldn't make it happen? Two, and they still ended up being like really fun chapters to report on, to write. Because like, you know, sometimes when you don't get the dude you're looking for in a story, it forces you to talk to a zillion other people who have a zillion better things to say and stories to share. So uh, Kellen Winslow, Shannon Sharp. Uh, Kellen Winslow, we talked on the phone. It sounded like it was all good to go. He said, call me back in October and just kind of fell off the face of the earth. So, you know, I got to a point where they had called him dozens of times. He's a tough kid. He's a t- I've found him over the years. I've tried to get him for stories and he just, he's, he's difficult. And one of the nicest guys when you see him in person, incredibly gracious, but hard to get. So I, okay. That one I could definitely understand. And who's the other. So, you know, and yeah, the other uh, Shannon Sharp. So oh, right. Sharp is obviously a little busy. Yeah, he's on TV. But you think he's gettable uh, because he's all over the place, right? And he's considered one of the, you know, the most gregarious guys around. It was like you would think that going into it, you, you, if you were drawing up a short list, you would probably put him pretty high on the I'm probably going to be able to get him category. Yeah, for whatever reason, his agent, you know, it was hard enough for him to respond via text, let alone answer a phone call. And just eventually he did and said, you know, thanks for no thanks. I'm glad though. I'm, I'm honestly saying that I'm glad that I didn't get him because from Anthony Lynn to Terrell Davis to Mike Shanahan to Jamal Lewis to Les Steckel to his, his college quarterback, Richard Les Basil. That's all. Oh, they, they've got a relationship. They, yeah, I think he calls them, he call them sweetie and they, they had nicknames for each other, um, but they painted a portrait of a guy who really brought the fun to tight end. Like Shannon Sharp, with the capital F U N as Steckel said, I mean, he he's he's the reason we have Gronk and Kittle and Kelsey and people who are making this position like entertaining at a fun level. Uh, quick quick story, if you if you humor me, I want to give people uh, right a, a few little trails to lead their way to the book, right? Right, <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely. Book selling thing. Um, so Shannon Sharp, I think it's 1993. He had a good year as a as a receiving tight end, right? But he's still on some special teams. So he's, he's not really arrived, right? He's not a star yet, um, but he's sitting in a special teams meeting and Richard Smith, the special teams coordinator, this is Anthony Lynn telling the story. And as he's telling it, he's like, he can't stop laughing. It's hard for him to even get the words out. But he said, Richard Smith is, you know, trying to get everybody jacked up with a fire and brimstone speech about talking, you know, talking about a wedge and busting through the wedge, which they're not allowed now. But you've got a bunch of guys who have 1,500 pounds of just men just setting up, and you need somebody to torpedo through that to get to the kick returner, and he's trying to get everybody all excited for it. And in so many words, he said, all right, if this isn't for you, get the F out. And Shannon Sharp <laughs> put up a finger like he's in church, stepped up, and just walked right out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, like, all the players were ready to die laughing. And like, Richard Smith is, like, so serious. Like, they're trying not to laugh. And he, Shannon Sharp walks out in front of the whole team. And he looks at Anthony Lynn, um, Smith, that is, and said, F him. You're in, Lynn. It's your position. So Anthony Lynn takes his position on special teams. And that becomes a team captain. And that's what really led to his coaching career, right? He's, he becomes a head coach. I was an assistant head coach with the 49ers. So Shannon Sharp loves to remind Lynn, like, hey, you wouldn't even be a coach if I didn't just walk out of that meeting. So he, 
he, he kept it entertaining. Like the workouts, the stretches before practices every day, it was like a comedy hour. They called it Club Shay Shay, which is the name of this podcast now. Um, so when, I, when he left after the two Super Bowl wins and, and he was gone, that killed the Broncos as much as anything. Just not having that camaraderie, like that team building, character building, comedy routine figure. He brought the fun to that whole locker room in, in countless ways that um, every team needs, right? That's real football too. You, you need a strong locker room like that. You need camaraderie. It's a long season and the tight end position is what provides that as well. Tyler, who do you think is the best Bills tight end of all time? Tim had a pretty convincing case on Dawson Knox trending that direction oh, last convinced. year. I was with you. I'm unconvinced. He wasn't ranked number one on my list, though. I gave a list. I said, is he? He was and trending. I think he right, he was trending that way. I think I had him third. Good question. You know, Obviously, there wasn't a Bills tight end that uh, made the book in that regard. But Metzler's right, Pete Metzler's. He's 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 got to be right up there. You know, he's, he's, he's in the right era. I got go I'm. I have to look up my story so I can. I got uh, it here. You want the top three? Yeah. What did I? What did I? I say? The, what do we want to count down from? Four, five, five. Do the whole Jay, thing. I think I only did like six or seven. Uh, there's only there's, there's only I have five worth fucking rating so number 10 Lonnie Johnson number <laughs> right? nine Keith Kagan McKellar yeah number eight Ruben Gant number seven Dawson Knox and climbing with an asterisk Scott Chandler number six number five Jay Remersma good tight end forgotten about by many maybe number four Charles mm-hmm. Clay I thought this was a curious choice on your part Tim Number three, Pete Metzelars. Number two, Paul Costa. Number one, Ernie Warlick. I think the one thing we can agree on is that the AFL era tight ends are probably the best in history. Yeah, Ernie Warlick, of course, his numbers are, you know, way out there. Uh, I cannot find uh, – I cannot uh, – You probably don't anyways. subscribe. Well, I'm you glad you – can't get through the paywall. <laughs> I, no, I can't I find say... – I just Googled – I just Googled Tim Graham and Pete Metzelars and it didn't come up. I, I would think that that would be a pretty good, uh, pretty Bad good SEO uh, by the athletic. Well, my, um, my vote would go to a player who's not on that list. And his name is Butch roll. Cause all he did was catch touchdowns and right. One of the yeah. biggest, most important plays. But you, uh, Charles clay, if you take a look at his numbers, even though it was for a short period of time, he had, you know, he, he's way up there and that's, it's a Testament or whatever the, I guess, Testament stole the word. Uh, but that's uh, just indicative of how awful the Bills tight ends have been over the course of time. And I've had discussions with Brandon Bean about this every year around draft time. And it's kind of, you know, I do it facetiously because I know he's never going to tell me who he's going to draft. But I'm, I, I always keep saying, would you please draft a two-way tight end so I can cover one uh, at some point in my career? Now, of course, Doxon Knox, you know, if he can, if he has totally uh, gotten past his uh, issues with drops, like he had in his first couple of seasons, and he can stay healthy, he could be that guy uh, eventually. He's a dynamic, uh, way more of a receiver than a blocker, but can still do both. Um, and uh, so anyways, I stand by that list. I know I put, a, I, I recall putting a lot of time into that because it was a hot button topic, topic of could Dawson Knox really be the best ever? So I looked at the numbers and Whatever I said on that list, uh, I'm happy with. So I had Dawson Knox at six. So you opened up this discussion, Jonah, by trying to make fun of the fact that I thought 
Dawson Knox is the greatest tight end in Bill's history, and he's not even in my top five. Well, I set you up well, for to look smarter yeah. than me. <laughs> Brendan, he's got a shot. There's an asterisk there. For sure. Absolutely. He's going to put up the numbers. Uh, Josh Allen loves him both on the field and off the field. They're tight. He's signed the contract extension. He's going to be in this offense for a long time and a, and a big part of it. He's going to have big numbers, uh, which is something that Bill's tight ends just don't do. Um, Tyler, who was the most, uh, who was, uh, are there any other stories you can tell about the uh, putting this book together and a, a difficult part of it or something you had to overcome or an interview that was turned out to be a, a surprise maybe? Yeah. Mike Dicka had, I, I, I was dead set determined to sit down at the golf course, you know, maybe with some cigars around with Mike Dicka because, you know, he really is the one who started this whole thing. I mean, no, nobody used the term tight end before Mike Dicka. <coughs> Sorry, a little something caught my throat there. Um, you know, before, before Dicka, you know, in the 50s with those Baltimore Colts teams and the, the old school Bears, it was, you know, you had split ends and ends, right? You said tight end because all of a sudden that end – is running routes and making plays down the field. And it was, you know, Mike Dicka from Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, straight from the steel mills, taking some beatings from his dad, you know, beating up his brother after youth baseball games. Like it, I read his autobiography and I'm like, I have to get Mike Dicka. I mean, he, he is the blueprint. He is the one who started this all. The tight end position does not exist without Mike Dicka. And, you know, we had a couple phone conversations and I wasn't so sure he even remembered who I was between phone conversations. He does text. Mike Dicka can text. Very short, you know, one or two words, but we kind of kept in touch over the course of several months and he started to piece it together. Oh yeah, this is the same guy who keeps calling me, texting me, asking about tight ends. And we were able to kind of lock in a date where I'd fly down there, hang out right at old Florida golf course with, with Mike Dicka. We're in the back room where he's always playing cards with his buddies. His wife showed up, his daughters showed up and uh, we chatted at length about everything. And um, I, I think that people will be blown away. I know I was because I didn't know. Maybe, maybe you don't, Tim, a little, little older than me. Maybe, maybe you're a little more uh, up on your NFL history. But Mike Dicka, when he got to Philly, when he was traded from the Bears to Philly and he had it out with George Hallis and Hallis was fed up with Dicka. He's kind of flirting with the AFL. Um, his life was in shambles. I mean, he, he was out getting drunk not knowing where he was waking up in a haze, like the color of his skin was even changing and he was depressed and then some, and was just ready to quit on football, quit on life. And then Tom Landry called Mike Dicka and, and, and saved his life. I mean, he went to Dallas, revitalized his career, got his life back on track, won a Super Bowl, caught a touchdown in the Super Bowl. And it's, it, there's a lot of, it's just quite a, a juxtaposition where Tom Landry calls Mike Dicka, saves his life. Mike Dicka becomes, basically the silhouette for the game. I mean, if you're going to have a logo of somebody, it could be Mike Dicka. We hear him. I mean, he coaches the 85 bears. He's a, a renowned broadcaster, all of that. Jackie Smith has an illustrious career with the St. Louis Cardinals puts up incredible numbers, you know, redefines the position in his own way. He gets a call from Tom Landry at 38 years old. He still wants the Super Bowl ring. He chases that ring with the Cowboys and obviously drops the touchdown and that's you, you say Jackie Smith I was just on CBS Sports Radio and they chuckle right like oh did he drop something when you're talking to him um it 
it changed his life, I think, way more than anybody knew up until about 2020. I mean, we're talking that recent where he really had to look in the mirror and ask himself hard questions about how he was letting that moment affect his relationships with his kids, his wife, his friends, his family. I mean, he had so many different jobs along the way. He, he, it, it was hard for him. And so that, that definitely blew out. Like, you know, Mike Dickett goes one direction when he goes to Dallas. Jackie Smith goes the other. Um, now I already forgot the second part of your question, Tim. No, I asked like a quadruple barreled question. I, I kind of had uh, everything in there uh, about surprises or pleasant twists or things that in putting the book together, what, uh, what stood oh, out. Yeah. There. This, you know what, we should talk about this on, on the podcast here because it's a name that many of your listeners, readers absolutely remember and have strong feelings about Mike Malarkey had had some conversations with Mike Malarkey. Um, there's a Mark Bruner chapter in here because he is, you know, maybe it's the nineties nostalgia. I, I wanted to talk to Mark Bruner so bad. He's, we remember him right at, at old three river stadium, just an extended offensive tackle, loving the grunt work. So have some funny stories from the trenches of how he'd hold guys, get his quote unquote lobster claws on you, drive people nuts. And Mike Malarkey's his coach, tell him to play through the echo of the whistle Mike Malarkey is old school. Like that is, when you talk about the tight end position, he wants that tight end to be in line, blocking, tight. He, he said with emphasis. So fast forward, Mike Malarkey is hired as the Atlanta Falcons offensive coordinator. Right when the Atlanta Falcons trade for Tony Gonzalez. First meeting, Tony Gonzalez, Mike Malarkey, they sit down, Mike Malarkey pulls up the film, doesn't really say much. He's kind of gruff. He's kind of rough around the edges. He's, according to Tony Gonzalez, feels kind of cold. Like, all right, this is kind of strange. Just starts playing highlights of those Steelers tight ends. A, a ton of Mark Bruner in there. And it's just tight ends just bashing heads in. There isn't anything fun down the field happening. This is right when Tony Gonzalez is evolving the, the position unlike anybody before him. I mean, he's changing it before everybody's eyes. And he already has a bunch of records. And Malarkey plays clip after clip after clip after clip and says, that is who you're going to be for me. That's a tight end. I don't care about the other stuff. You're going to block. And Tony Gonzalez doesn't really say anything, but he's thinking like, why in the hell did you guys trade for me? And from that point forward, uh, their relationship was icy, to put it kindly. And there was a moment, week 17 in Tampa Bay, Tony Gonzalez is stuck on catch number 999. Tony Gonzalez is convinced Mike Malarkey iced him out in that second half, refused to call plays for him until the last drive. And Matt Ryan's pressured. He can't even get the ball off. And let's just say the scene in the locker room in Tampa Bay, in the visitor's locker room after that game, um, I asked Mike Malarkey about it too. And uh, they, yeah, Tony Gonzalez was, was ready to uh, throw a few punches. He, he was ready to light Malarkey up. Pretty sure Malarkey was ready to light Gonzalez up. They were going to go at it. They didn't. It was close. Oh, don't give all the spoilers. You got to have people buy the book, Tyler. Don't give all the spoilers. We're going to stop it right there. Right. We should have, yeah, we got to stop it. Intriguing, though, I guess what would be left unanswered for me as a potential reader, even though I have read it, but as a potential reader would be why would Mike Malarkey talk to you if he had such a problem with Tony Gonzalez? So there must have been further developments. Um, 
Tyler, uh, I he enjoyed. To talk too. He he talked on his way to uh, seeing his like ill parents. So he yeah he made a point to to talk to me for this book, no doubt. That's great. But the blood and guts, how tight ends save football. Uh, to see Tyler Dunn at the bottom of that book is pretty cool. Um, got it on the spine there. It's going to be in libraries and things. You know, you're going to be on shelves forever. You're in the Library of Congress. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> Anything else right, you want to talk about before you? When you know. What's that? I was going to say that, that that's what makes it really like real. I did a lot of writing on this book at the library in Hamburg because it's just so peaceful and quiet. Like between the library and Spot Coffee in downtown Hamburg, it was, I just kind of toggled between those two locations. But that's, it definitely hit me to your point. Like, you know, we all obviously take our jobs unbelievably serious and try to be thorough and report the hell out of stuff. But when you know that book is going to be there forever, it definitely gives you a heightened sense of like, holy shit. Like this, Every word in this needs to be exact, precise, and cutting. And um, it was a it was a long process, a stressful process, but unbelievably rewarding. And, and more than anything, I just can't wait for everybody else to hear the stories I did from these tight ends. Like it, it was it was just a hell of a lot of fun to hang out with these guys and to share that with everybody else is is pretty dang cool. Three hundred and thirty five pages. This is no uh, cheap. This isn't a cheapy. You didn't uh, you didn't just you know, throw a pamphlet together and call it a book. 335 pages. Congratulations on it, Tyler. I'm happy for you. I know that these are uh, incredibly um, intense endeavors to embark upon and to get through it. This isn't an I, uh, as told to book where you're transcribing and, you know, that's, that's not easy either, but still it, it, you, you kind of can go on autopilot a little bit and just let the interviews speak for themselves. And you're just, assembling a chronology of, of things, but this is 15 different stories, 15 chapters. And um, I know how much time you put into a story. So 15 stories, multiply that by 15, and then probably even multiply it by two or three again, uh, because of uh, the scrutiny and the permanence of it. And what's that? We're going to need Rob Gronkowski to teach us some advanced math to figure out that <laughs> right. formula. That's right. Uh, Tyler, anything else you he want to talk about? He hasn't spent a dime of his contract money. That's the, that's the fable. That. Sorry, I keep interrupting you, Tim. No, no, I just want to see if there's anything hey, else hey, you want to chat that... about before you go. I just got to, uh, you know, thank, because there might be you know, folks here in Western New York who, who know my wife, but I got to give it up to Gina. She was unbelievable. So, like, like you know, you can't really, like, devote your life to something and gallivant around and hang out with all these tight ends unless you uh, have a significant other that is you know at home with your newborn son and your one and a half year old daughter and it's it was a chaotic time so um yeah gina was unbelievable i was so lucky and blessed uh, to have a a partner in crime on this she was as much a part of this as anybody tyler thanks for making time for this uh congratulations and good luck with the sales uh, we will follow the charts and uh, once again, I'll give another plug uh, for the Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football, which is on sale next week. Get it on Amazon or at uh, bookstores. Um, Tyler Dunn, everybody. Thanks for joining Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. Great to be here, man. Thanks so much for the opportunity. You guys are awesome. And 
I know I always say that we, we, we need to get together ASAP wings, beer. Let's make it happen very, very soon. We have to have a nosh to uh, celebrate, uh, celebrate this big accomplishment. Tyler, thanks for doing this. Let's do it.